Welcome to episode two of Making a Killing, the podcast from Hudson Institute's Kleptocracy Initiative on how corruption is reshaping global politics. If you missed our trailer or episode one, I hope you'll rewind and give them a quick listen as we took time to spell out what the show's about and what kind of content you can expect going forward. Assuming you've got that background, we've got a fantastic episode for you today. Paul and Casey join me once again to break down some of the big kleptocracy news from this week, from Russia, Georgia and the US Congress. After that, I'm delighted to host as my first interview guest, Marshall Billingsley, someone who has taken the fight against illicit finance to America's adversaries over the course of a hugely distinguished career. Before his most recent role as presidential envoy for arms control, he served as assistant secretary for terrorist and other illicit finance at the US Treasury. And he was also president of the Financial Action Task Force, which serves as the global anti-money laundering watchdog. I'm going to be talking to him about the pervasive role of corruption and kleptocracy, taking us around the world to look at some of the most egregious cases from the past few years, many of which you may well not have heard of. What he did in government to counter it, including his thoughts, some of which may surprise you, on some controversial sanctions decisions made in the last days of the Trump presidency. Before we kick things off, please do subscribe to Making a Killing if you've not done so already. You can find us anywhere that you listen to podcasts. And while you're at it, I'd be grateful for a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts if you want to support us and hear more as we unfold the murky and dangerous world of transnational kleptocracy. But without further ado, here's Casey and Paul to help me break down a few of this week's major developments. Welcome to the, the news section of the show. I'm joined, as always, by Paul Massaro and Casey Michelle uh, to discuss some of the, uh, the big developments pertaining to corruption and kleptocracy, as well as some of the latest policy work that's going on to try and, to try and counter it around the world. This week, I've been thinking uh, very much about Biden's various commitments that he's made, the various statements that he's made about prioritizing the fight against uh, transnational corruption, uh, and how the Putin regime uh, has put that to the test, really, uh, quite early on with two kind of big challenges, to my mind. The first is obviously the big protests in Russia over the detention of Alexei uh, Navalny, hugely prominent anti-corruption uh, campaigner, opposition leader within, within Russia, who has exposed, uh, as probably no one else has, the, the inner workings of, of Putin's you know, uh, inner circle and uh, the way that they have stolen uh, systematically from, from the Russian people over the years. And he's done it with great sense of humor, which has engaged the Russian people. So when he returned to Russia after being poisoned by uh, Putin's regime, uh, recently, he was immediately detained, provo- uh, provoking uh, widespread protests across across Russia, which the, the, the prevailing chant by the, cr- the crowds was Putin is a thief, Putin is a thief. So the US response um, was not, you know, what I would have done being someone who's focused on kleptocracy. I think the first, you know, State Department's statement was, uh, mentioned things like vote rigging. It didn't actually mention corruption. Um, but I know there are efforts underway in Congress to, to issue new sanctions. And in fact, the EU, uh, of, all, of all places, just issued its first Magnitsky Act sanctions uh, against some of the Russian uh, officials involved in the detention of Alexei Navalny. So I wonder if you guys had any thoughts on on the Navalny protests uh, and, and the, re- the initial response to them. Yeah, for sure, Nate. I'll, I'll jump in here. Paul right here, uh, Helsinki Commission, of course, speaking in a personal capacity. And I'll, So looking at these EU sanctions, I mean, this comes on the heels of Joseph Burrell, sort of the, the, the high representative of the EU, uh, getting a rather cold reception, to put it diplomatically, in Moscow. He's sort of uh, uh, chased out, and it, it's pretty extraordinary Well, they humiliated thing. him, didn't they? <laughs> they absolutely humiliated him. <laughs> which, is really, which is really quite extraordinary. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of these things where it seems like Russia is really ready to go to town on the EU, 
which hasn't historically been the case. Uh, historically, Russia, of course, has wanted to, you know, ha- has seen the EU as one of these like, OK, well, we can remain close to the EU while we fight the United States and that sort of thing. And and so long as we do that, we'll be set, you know, and I, I think there are elements within the EU that see it the same way. Of course, this new thing where, where I, what was it that Lavrov said? He said, you know, we must now see the EU as an unreliable partner or something of the sort. Right? Like it's like like oh <laughs> oh now now you know and 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 it's and it's and so the the EU shot back with these with these uh, Magnitsky sanctions. Which okay, so first of all, really good to see the mechanism used. I mean, it's, right. it's obviously you want to see these sanctions used. It's not it's not good to just have it in place. Um, you got to see it used. And of course, we all know, we were all a little, I mean, we're all very, very, very happy that this was adopted by the EU. Of course, it omits corruption sanctions, you know, and, and that's mm-hmm. that's something I think we want to keep pounding the table on. It's like, okay, well, you know, you're you're missing half the law here, and and, and we certainly can't set, synchronize with global Magnitsky sanctions uh, until such a time as the EU adopts corruption sanctions That's right. Well. Just for the benefit of listeners who don't know, the Magnitsky sanctions, pioneered by the United States, coming from the Helsinki Commission, uh, allow the, the US to target human rights abusers and corrupt actors around the world. Other countries are now taking this up, but many of them have, have left out the corruption limb of that law and are only introducing sanctions regimes based on human rights. Uh, so just sorry to jump in, Paul, just in case people well, well, think we're going it's straight to the Well, it's just the EU. <laughs> it's just the EU. I mean, I mean I, we, we've got... We've got the UK now. With, I mean, the, the foreign minister Dominic Raab, uh, you know, has basically said we're gonna we're gonna bring corruption into this. You know, I mean, we're mm-hmm. looking for ways to do it. Uh, I, I believe Canada includes it as well. Um, and, but of course, Canada hasn't used their Magnitsky Act since uh, 2018. There was a great op-ed this morning on that. Um, so, so I mean, yeah, okay, yeah, you're, you're, you're fair enough. You know, I mean, we mm-hmm. we really need to see more aggressive corruption sanctions. Um, I mean, not just because these things are so closely intertwined. But because, I mean, as we all know, like sanctions against corrupt individuals and for corrupt acts just makes a lot of intuitive sense. You know, you you stole a lot of money, you put it abroad and now we can freeze that. You know, I mean, like like it's, it's a pretty powerful, powerful thing. So anyway, uh, the EU has hit uh, these four goons involved in the in the in the persecution of the volley. And that's what they are. They're basically just the sort of goons that were that were, uh, you know, given command to or given the given the command to you know persecute Navalny and imprison him and all that kind of stuff but these aren't the people behind the scenes these are not the oligarchs these are not the these are not Putin's cronies these are not the important people they're basically um extremely low cost almost almost the negligible cost individuals uh that have been sanctioned under under the EU regime and uh, you know, I mean, we, uh, you know, uh, Josh, Josh Rudolph, a, a good friend of all ours, had a, had a great tweet on this. That it's, it's almost worse than nothing. You know, <laughs> like, I mean, I don't know if I'd agree with that. I think it's good to see sanctions used, um, but yeah. but it is a problem. Uh, it does signal that the EU is not ready yet or willing yet to go all the way. But then, of course, we haven't used global Magnitsky sanctions either. Right. You know, so I mean, I would like to see, of course, and and you know, Congress, I think, generally. And the protesters and, and the, protest. the Russian opposition in exile. That's all they've called. That's for. right. And, and and we've got the great Navalny eight. You know, I yeah. mean, where are the sanctions on the Navalny eight? There, and there's a further list of 35 that his anti-corruption foundation, uh, 35 instrumental people in Putin's regime that they sent to, the, you know, the U.S. authorities. And we're just we're waiting for the response. It's felt it's it's felt uh, delayed. It's felt lackluster. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I mean, it's of course hard to complain. When the EU is now, in a sense, ahead of the game, you know, um, ahead of ahead of others. So 
I see Casey wants to say something. Casey, you well, just got to jump in here and ignore me. You know, no, uh, no, no. I mean, Paul, me. to, to to your point, you know, I think this notion that it is, you know, as Josh mentioned, you know, it is an action. Almost, it seems like for the sake of actions, right? You are sanctioning, okay, a small number of individuals who are relatively behind the scenes or who are primarily within the security services. Okay, fine. Certainly, that is a move that can be applauded, but by no means is it a move of the magnitude of or a magnitude for which something like a Magnitsky act or certainly in the u.s's case global magnitsky would have been used for and i just wanted to turn back to nate's initial question pertaining to uh the developments we've seen regarding navalny his imprisonments the protests over the last few weeks i mean again i don't think there's anything that we have seen from uh moscow from the kremlin's decisions and actions over the last few weeks that's necessarily uh necessarily surprising whether it's the imprisonment of navalny whether it's the sham show trial that we saw resulting uh or obviously the crackdowns on protests themselves. I just wanted to highlight, as uh, Paul just mentioned, this Navalny 8, this kind of elite 8 of figures that Navalny floated and his team floated. Obviously, there were a few dozen more that came thereafter. But these high-level, elite-level, well-known, at least relative to the uh, kind of broader kleptocracy space, names topped by uh, figures like Roman uh, Abramovich, who for years uh, is best known perhaps in the West for owning the Chelsea Football Club, for owning obviously mega yachts, for living the kind of uh, generally wealthy uh, quasi-celebrity, quasi-mogul lifestyle, ingratiating himself into Western polities, obviously most especially in the UK and in London. The fact that Navalny placed Abramovich at the top of the list and the fact that the rationale behind that is that you you can't simply target the security officials. You can't simply target the inner circle, the inner sanctum, whether it's in uh, Moscow, whether it is in, in Chechnya, those surrounding Ramzan Kadyrov and, and his entire clock, his entire network. You have to begin going. And this is for the US, this is for Canada, this is for the EU, this is for the UK, this is for Switzerland. After those oligarchs that have taken full advantage of all the services, of all the reputation laundering mechanisms, of all the financial secrecy mechanisms in the West to, again, ingratiate themselves into these Western polities. Abramovich is the perfect case study of this phenomenon. He's by no means the only one, nor is this a phenomenon limited to, to Russia itself. You have uh, uh, elite-level Kazakhs, elite-level Ukrainians, any range of post-Soviet states, any range of oligarchic castes networks, um, authoritarian regimes, you name it. Abramovich is but one, but he is an excellent case study in the kind of dominoes that will need to fall as it pertains to um, uh, you know, implementing Magnitsky, global Magnitsky-related sanctions regimes to their fullest extent. Now, we haven't seen that yet, but it is certainly a, a signal flare from Navalny and his team if these programs are to be successful, if they are to be meant, if they're to achieve what they are meant to achieve, you have to, have to target the Abramoviches of the world. Whether Navalny's in jail or not, that is the name, that is the cast of character you have to go after. Yeah, I agree full stop. And I just want to, I just want to add, uh, you know, very, very shortly that, you know, I mean, this Magnitsky, the, the Magnitsky sort of global movement continues to expand. I mean, you've, you have the EU adopting it. Now you've got uh, Australia, with a with a recommendation to do it, you've got Japan considering it. I mean, this is this even goes beyond Russia. I mean, this is this has become sort of the uh, the tool or, or or one of the top tools to fight kleptocracy. It's a it's a pretty extraordinary thing, and not just Russian kleptocracy, but Chinese kleptocracy and all sorts of other kleptocracy around the world. Sure. I mean, no, these are these are 
great points. I'd love to, and we're going to, to totally do whole episodes on Global Magnitsky and all the rest of it. We've got to, we've got to keep moving because there's so much to talk about uh, this week uh, in our, our first proper news discussion. So the second thing I was going to talk about, sort of progression, the other big challenge I've been thinking about for the Biden uh, uh, team uh, in the early days po- posed by Russia, but also pose, posed by the Europeans is the progression of the Nord Stream 2 project. Again, we've, we've just seen some sanctions issued by the Biden uh, campaign. To, what, do, what are you guys' uh, thoughts on those? Uh, it wasn't Paul, you, you pinged me earlier, just a text, which these are actually mandated by Congress, right? This isn't the kind of like full force uh, thing that they could have done to try and stop Nord Stream 2 if they, if they really wanted to. Perhaps they're leaving the door open for negotiations with the Europeans, whatever it is. And why am I, why am I talking about Nord Stream 2 in the, the vein of a, on, on a kleptocracy podcast for starters? Perhaps our readers aren't aware of the sort of back backstory to this. But um, suffice to say for now, I suppose we can do a proper deep dive later on. But, you know, many people call it kind of a pipeline for corruption. Uh, it emanates from Russia, and it, it just it, you know it's it's become this hugely problematic project uh, and causing a lot of transatlantic tension. But if you guys have any re- really quick comments on that, because we've got so much more to move on to, these are mandated by Congress. That's exactly right. These are these are shall sanctions, right? I mean, th- mm. there's no this isn't a oh well here's the power go ahead and do it if you want executive branch. This is like we're tying your hands. Right. You got to do this. Uh, this is this is like this is like the original Magnitsky Act as opposed to global Magnitsky. Every global Magnitsky sanction that's mm-hmm. made is at the discretion of the president at the end of the day. Whereas Russia Magnitsky is not. Russia Magnitsky, which is the original Magnitsky Act, 2012, you know, the one that essentially says those involved in the in the in the in the murder of Sergei Magnitsky mm-hmm. and human rights abusers in Russia have to be sanctioned. Uh, that's a shall. And that's the same thing as here. This is a shall. So the administration, I I I I assume, uh, Nate, I assume you're correct. I assume that they are they are attempting to create an off-ramp of sorts for Germany in the, in the hope that mm. Germany might, of its own accord, yeah. you know, uh, back out of the project or or end the project. Or or perhaps they're thinking in terms of, oh, well, you know, it's just been a really turbulent few years and we really need to repair the relationship with Germany. Um, but, I mean, whatever it is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, 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 these sanctions have to be enforced. <laughs> You know, this is this is you know it's it's not this isn't a choice. This is mm-hmm. this is congressional mandate that they be so enforced. The, and they, the Biden team, as it is now, has done kind of what it's legally obliged to do anyway, and we await their the kind of administration response, as it were. And I think like uh, that's a situation to we'll have to sort of watch over the next few weeks. And something I think we should address uh, just this week because it's flared up in a big way is is the situation in the Republic of Georgia, great democratic country, um, sort of seen rising protests over the past. Week, week or so, uh, allegations of vote rigging, echoing protests in, along other, in other countries along Russia's periphery, uh, Belarus, Kyrgyzstan, for example. You know, and in, in Georgia, this has also resulted in kind of a crackdown recently culminating past 24 hours, the detention of uh, Nika Malia, the, the opposition leader who's dragged from, the, from his party headquarters. Uh, so it's a really dispiriting development in, 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 in an otherwise uh, very hopeful democratic country. Uh, what does this again, dear listeners? Like, what does this have to do with kleptocracy? Well, I would, I would sort of say one of the reasons that this situation has arisen because the country's uh, and correct me if you disagree, guys, but increasingly under the control of uh, one billionaire, like one oligarch. You know, in Russia, you have a team of oligarchs under Putin, and in Georgia and several other countries, uh, you, you know, there's a, there's tends to be one big guy, big head honcho, uh, a B- monogarch. Zina, uh, yeah, that's, that's monogarch. what I heard him call it before. Mono- yeah. Monogarch, that's a great monogarch, term. Yeah. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't make any sense because autocracy <laughs> is the word for that in the English language, but <laughs> so monogarch, in the, sure. So in this case, it's, it's Bidzina Ivanishvili. I'm uh, 
Georgian names are beautiful, but I always I always struggle with them. I'm afraid. So apologies to to our Georgian listeners and his Georgian dream party. So, you guys got any thoughts on that? What should the U.S. response be there? Is there anything? You know, everyone reaches for sanctions. Is there anything else we can do to to assist uh, democratic-minded Georgians as as they face this down? Nate, that's a great question. I mean, this is something that I, I think to take a step back, obviously, you know, following the 2008 invasion uh, 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 by Russia and the you know, self-declared uh, <laughs> uh, Moscow-backed independence of uh, Abkhazia and South Ossetia, uh, you know, Georgia has been at the fore of security concerns in the Caucasus for you know, now over a dozen years. Obviously, there have been very close uh, American and Georgian military relations for going on you know, at least 20 years at this point. Uh, you know, there is a very lengthy and steeped and convoluted history of security relations and security concerns in the country. Um, but as it pertains to, and then, and then obviously the 2003 Rose Revolution as well, in terms of uh, uh, one of the primary color revolutions, quote unquote, color revolutions that mm -hmm. uh, uh, installed democratic governance in the post-Soviet space. The you know, the, the, the matter with Ivanishvili is that this isn't something that happened overnight. Mm -hmm. He didn't wake up you know, I know Ivanishvili, again, is uh, perceived to be, uh, in my estimation correctly, this kind of power behind the throne or this uh, uh, figure who is, uh, uh, to, you know, to use a certain metaphor, pulling the strings on a range of politicians. I mean, that's the consensus as it pertains to democratic politics in, um, in Georgia. And again, it's a similar dynamic we have seen play out in other countries in the post-Soviet space. But this is a trajectory that Georgia has been on for the last three, four, five years years you know we saw anti-democratic arrests even this time last year uh of those who had spoken out against Ivanishvili, of those who had spoken out uh against his consolidation of power you know this is again not something that just flared up overnight it's also something that the u.s doesn't seem to have either placed at the fore or, or, or placed on um uh, uh you know even at the desk of the president necessarily i haven't seen any commentary as of yet from the president either in the current administration or the previous administration let alone from Brussels, let alone from Ottawa, let alone from any other Western partners pertaining to this backsliding, primarily because Georgia continues to maintain very close security relations with NATO. But if the U.S., if the West is unable to place uh, necessary amounts of pressure either uh, uh, publicly or behind the scenes uh, regarding Georgia's very clear democratic backsliding. You know, there's only so many things that can be done. We've begun seeing chatter in Washington about potentially placing uh, Ivanishvili under global Magnitsky sanctions. That's certainly a solution, whether it's the solution, I'm not entirely sure. There are a, a range of other potential, again, conversations, solutions, policy decisions that can and should be taken. But again, at the end of the day, it's something that does need to be far uh, uh, higher up the ranks of concerns and uh, uh, discussions in Washington, because without American presence, without American rhetoric, uh, you know, there's no reason to think that this uh, backsliding is going to stop anytime soon. Casey, I think that's right. And uh, I mean, I, I, it does, it does, I completely agree with the trajectory. This, this definitely feels like a moment though. You know what I'm saying? I mean, this, I, I, I do think that this has turned heads in a way that little else has. And, and I'll say that, uh, you know, the, the U.S. Embassy in Georgia put out a, a very powerful statement today. I mean, I mean, really like one that I, I mm -hmm. haven't seen language used like this before. I mean, I'll, I'll just read this one no, sentence right, from yeah. it and say, today, Georgia has moved backward on its path toward becoming a stronger democracy in the Euro-Atlantic family of nations. And I mean, that that, you know, if you know the State Department, you know, right. that is like nine out of 10, you know, mm -hmm. like that, that, that's, that's, a, that's very, very, very strong. So, I mean, it's, 
I don't know. It, it does feel like something's happened here. So. Well, we're running out of time. I just wanted to flag another great thing that came out of the State Department today, which was the recognition, uh, a statement from the Secretary of State himself, uh, recognizing the achievements and bravery of 12 anti-corruption champions uh, from around the world. Again, this is a new thing and hopefully part of the Biden team's commitment to, to sort of like supporting people who are combating kleptocracy around the world. So we've basically run out of time. We've got about a couple of minutes left, but I couldn't I couldn't finish up here without throwing over to you for the final word, Paul, on some amazingly promising uh, legislation that's coming out of the Helsinki Commission from Senator Cardin uh, that, you, that I know you've been working on. I wonder if you could just give us a quick summary of what, what's going on there. There's so much happening in counter-kleptocracy, of course, and, and, and there's been these three incredible bills from our presumptive chairman, uh, Senator Cardin, the Countering Russian and Other Overseas Kleptocracy Act, which would enable some, uh, some amount of FCPA, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, fines and penalties to be recycled into anti-corruption work, the Combating uh, Global Corruption Act, which would mandate a tiered report, a three-tiered report, uh, ranking countries based on their compliance with international anti-corruption uh, norms and standards. And those in the lowest tier uh, would have their leadership evaluated for global Magnitsky sanctions. And of course, the global Magnitsky reauthorization, uh, which empowers uh, global Magnitsky by uh, adopting some of the excellent language of the executive order under which it's been implemented, EO 13818. And I also just want to give a shout out to uh, Transparency International USA, which put out a mm -hmm. fantastic report uh, just last week that includes, you know, really strong support for all of these bills. And they've been leading a very strong, uh, a very strong advocacy effort uh, around getting these things passed. So uh, yep. that's, that's, of course, terrific. Yeah, it's great to have a Transparency International uh, chapter working away in DC now. Um, but that's all we've got time for today. We're, we're definitely going to have them on to talk about that uh, very soon. So, But thanks so much, guys. That's all we have time for in our news section. Please stick around, though, because next up, I will be talking to Marshall Billingsley, uh, one of the top US officials engaged uh, in, in America's fight against dirty money. He's fresh out of the Trump administration, and he's going to give us his insights on that. Okay, well, hi again, everyone. Uh, welcome back. Um, I'm delighted to be joined now by Marshall Billingsley. Marshall, uh, welcome to Making a Killing. Uh, and indeed, welcome to Hudson Institute, because uh, as of this week, we're, we're colleagues now, uh, which I'm delighted and excited to work, work with you on. Thanks. So just to recap for our listeners, um, I introduced Marshall at the start, but you joined Hudson uh, sort of fresh out of the US government, um, where you most recently served as special presidential envoy for arms control, perhaps more uh, relevantly for what we're about to talk about, also as assistant secretary for terrorist financing, and other sorts of illicit finance uh, at the U.S. Treasury. And you also served as president of the Financial Action Task Force, which is the global anti-money laundering watchdog. Um, so it's really great to have you on. Really looking forward to our chat. Um, one of the, I guess to kick off, one of the things I'm trying to do with the podcast is help listeners understand just how pervasive the, the contemporary uh, problem of kleptocracy and corruption is. I think many people still have kind of a narrow interpretation of, of what a kleptocrat is. They think of a Melder Marcos's shoes or a Russian oligarch flashing around London in a Ferrari with his, his girlfriend or something like that. But as someone who has worked in government on the full gamut of financial threats, uh, what role do you see corruption and kleptocracy playing in the contemporary global economy? And in particular, how does it sort of create and exacerbate other security problems that we face? Well, first of all, Nate, um, thanks for the introduction. It is great to join Hudson. And in particular, uh, I am really uh, excited and appreciative of the opportunity 
to support all of the great work that you've been doing with the uh, Kleptocracy Initiative. Uh, I've listened to your podcasts. Um, I was particularly interested in the nexus between the doping and sporting uh, scandals mm-hmm. and, and the overall uh, corruption environment. I think you've got a, a strong argument there and, and we should pursue that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of you know your, your opening question here, I think it's really important that we stress that corruption and kleptocracy is not limited to the so-called third world. Uh, this is a phenomena that we uh, find um, in many countries, including in Europe. Uh, there are levels of corruption all over the place, including in the United States. Uh, ultimately, corruption fundamentally undermines the rule of law and it, it corrodes society. Uh, and when unchecked, it leads to human rights abuses of the most horrific type. It leads to environmental ecocide. Uh, it leads to ultimately, uh, when unchecked, the emergence of anti-democratic, uh, either oligarchic or, or dictatorial regimes. So, you know, I view kleptocracy, the, the term, to, to mean that, that kind of final culminating stage of rampant corruption, where through violence, through intimidation, through highly unethical business behavior, uh, wealth that really belongs to the broader society is, is amassed and, and concentrated in the hands of a few. And generally, uh, with kleptocracies, I, at least in my experience, I found it almost impossible to distinguish between those who govern and those who steal. Uh, mm-hmm. They basically become one and the same. I think Russia is a good example of this today. Right. So I suppose the next, the natural next question is, uh, in as much as you can divulge anything from your sort of insights from your, all your work on this in government and the various bad actors you, you sort of dealt with, how does contemporary transnational kleptocracy work? You mentioned the role of, uh, of, of Western countries, for example. But, you know, just taking a very broad view, um, if you were sort of a young researcher or a young official looking to do something uh, in this area, what are the most serious corruption risks uh, you think uh, are facing us today worldwide of any kind of nature, really? Well, you know, I, there's a tendency because the international financial system is complex and the way uh, cash settlement occurs, the uh, the way financial transactions move, <clears throat> sometimes it can be a bit daunting and, and the wiring diagrams often look like spaghetti charts. <laughs> I do think it's important that we we simplify these issues as best we can. At the end of the day, kleptocracy is basically stealing and looting on a grand scale. So at the heart of of any kleptocratic system, there are going to be several uh, basic attributes. And I would say this is not an exhaustive list, of course, but first of all, there is the thing to be stolen. Uh, In the third world, very often it's natural resources. Uh, In the case of Venezuela, uh, it's been uh, oil and gold. Yep. Uh, in Congo, uh, everybody's heard about the blood diamond trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Uganda, neighboring countries, again, gold. But in other places like Cambodia, it's old growth forests. Mm-hmm. And in Kenya, Tanzania, uh, it's, it's, the, it's wildlife trafficking. It's poaching of animals. In, in other uh, more developed nations, sometimes the thing that is stolen wouldn't necessarily be a natural resource. It, it, it often is either a basic or rather a business enterprise or a basic service to society. Let me give you some examples. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lebanon, before uh, the collapse of the economy there, uh, despite having one of the most robust banking sectors in the world, uh, there was no potable water and no reliable electricity, despite years and years and years and billions invested 
that money was being siphoned off and, and uh, diverted to other purposes. In Russia, um, it, it really has come down to the seizure of companies uh, and putting those assets under the control of, of Vladimir Putin's cronies. But for instance, in Latvia, uh, a NATO ally uh, and a Baltic nation, uh, when we designated uh, an oligarch there by the last name of Limburgs, uh, his basic business model, among, among uh, other things that he was doing, such as intimidating people out of politics, was he was running the port uh, system and the logistics infrastructure. Uh, or back to Venezuela, uh, you, you see theft from humanitarian assistance, the so-called clap boxes, which I'd like to do a special deep dive with you in the coming days, uh, because I view the, the use of uh, corruption in the food, uh, in, in food aid as uh, among the most horrific types right. of, of theft. Yep. Uh, but it also, there was an entire scheme to basically devalue the national currency, mm -hmm. to siphon money off from, from that. In Malaysia, uh, with the 1MDB scandal, it was the theft of billions from a fund that was ostensibly meant to develop the country for the people. So those are the things to be stolen. Then there are the actions that are associated with the theft. And this ranges from bribery of government officials to look the other way, uh, violence against those who try to stop the theft, including uh, assassination of investigative journalists and government officials, um, intimidation and the like. And ultimately what you see, Nate, is when unchecked, there's a collapse of law and order and everyone starts engaging in corrupt actions, often just to survive. And when it gets to a failed state situation like we now have in Venezuela, corruption is the you know, economic model. One final point on this. Mm -hmm. you know, with kleptocratic regimes, these are by definition institutionalized operations, which means they, they rinse and they repeat. They don't stop. Uh, and what that means is there become highly evolved supply chains that move the commodity out and sophisticated financial transfer mechanisms. Now, we often call it money laundering, but very often at the, at the outset, that money flows out fairly brazenly and fairly transparently. It's only when attention gets called to the crimes or when the bad actor, uh, like Imelda and Fernand Marcus, have accumulated so much wealth that they can't possibly spend everything they've stolen that they then start thinking about how they're actually going to live long enough to spend it. Mm -hmm. And that means they want anonymity. That means they want the ability to move around undetected. And so that's when you begin to see establishment of money laundering networks that rely on front companies that are in offshore banking jurisdictions. Uh, it means uh, getting passports that would allow you uh, visa-free travel to the U.S. or Schengen, uh, or even better, EU citizenship. Uh, it also means buying things so that you can move around um, undetected, so on, you know, so to speak. And that's things such as yachts and private jets so that you can get back and forth to the overseas mansions where you've parked all your wealth, uh, whether that's in Limassol, Cyprus, or uh, for the Russians, or in Spain or Portugal, or, or Texas or Florida for the Venezuelans. So those are just a few of the attributes that I think people digging into kleptocratic regimes and systems would would find largely in common across the board. Thanks so much. You gave us an amazing sort of global tour of uh, kleptocracy uh, over the past few years there. Um, and one thing that as you were speaking, a sort of additional question that popped up to my mind is, how do you think um, the, the rise and the emergence of China uh, as, a, as a global economic force and the, the kind of economic policies that it pursues, the, the, the way it operates, how, is the, how has that affected corruption risks around the world? I mean, one of the things that's kind of shocked me just in the past few years of working on this issue, and you have a much longer level of experience than I do, 
is just the the way that uh, corruption has been turbocharged along the Belt and Road. Um, you know, there's so many cases sort of popping up there. So um, just any comments you have about that, I'd be, I'd be fascinated. Well, the rise of China and China is, as you mentioned, I was president of the Financial Action Task Force and I, I handed off the presidency to uh, a Chinese official member of their central bank. Um, but I must say that uh, China is part and parcel of the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't mean the PBOC, but I do mean the predatory business behaviors of Chinese state-owned enterprises around the world. Yep. You mentioned Belt and Road uh, and the use of debt traps. Um, at the end of the day, uh, we see Chinese enterprises engaged in uh, all manner of, of uh of fraudulent behavior, of, uh, of bribery uh, as, they, as they work their way into systems. Moreover, we find that um, often the state-owned enterprises are, are really very much interested in those natural resources that I mentioned at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when, they, when they've pushed their way into these countries and, and start targeting the extractive uh, uh, business operations, whether we're talking about timber or minerals in particular, or oil, uh, we don't find that the Chinese state-owned enterprises are transparent, and we don't find that, in fact, they are a, a force for fighting corruption. Uh, and moreover, you know, China is the end destination and the most heaviest you know, consumer of some of these uh, ill-gotten gains, particularly in the wildlife trafficking uh, business. And then finally, I would just say that um, having worked to try to get the Chinese to implement other uh, UN-mandated sanctions regimes, such as uh, on North Korea, their banking sector is not transparent, uh, and uh, and the government uh, uh, really works overtime to to avoid um, enforcing many of these kinds of sanctions measures. So the rise of China is going to greatly complicate uh, and exacerbate this problem unless they change their ways. As I mentioned, you're you're fresh out of uh, the, the Trump administration, where you held a number of senior roles. Um, in terms of combating illicit finance and kleptocracy, you know, there's uh, lots of people sort of have, a, you know, there's, a, there's a controversial views over President Trump himself, but the administration undoubtedly took a number of really important steps uh, in this regard uh, during the past four years. And so I just wondered if you could walk us through some of the things you're particularly proud of, some of the actions, achievements that you, that you implemented uh, to take on uh, the kleptocrats and, and other bad actors. Yeah, you know, it, it is really one of the... Um less uh, understood um, set of accomplishments that, that, that we were able to, to achieve with the president's support under the previous administration. Uh, under President Trump, we launched the Global Magnitsky Sanctions Program, uh, mm-hmm. and we've been encouraging other nations to follow our lead, and they are now starting to do so, as we've seen in recent days. Uh, we held accountable under that, uh, under that program alone uh, more than 100 people in networks uh, around the world, including human rights abusers and corrupt officials in Nicaragua, I mentioned Venezuela, but Iran, South Sudan, uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Myanmar, among others. Um, some of our targets include, for instance, uh, Mang Mang Soy, who oversaw the military operations against in, in Burma's Rakhine state, which led to uh, what I view as genocide against the Rohingya civilians. Uh, they were shooting civilians, they were raping women, uh, and there were all kinds of Burmese military commanders and units involved in the ethnic cleansing and the other widespread human rights abuses. And I mention that because, because Myanmar is now, of course, back in the news with the military coup that just has occurred. 
-hmm. But our other actions include uh, measures against high-profile, prominent international businessmen, such as Dan Gertler, mm -hmm. uh, who amassed a fortune through hundreds of millions of dollars uh, of opaque and corrupt mining and oil deals in the Congo, and, and really looting the wealth of that, of that country. It was directly because of our sanctions actions against Gertler that we deterred his partner in crime, Laurent Kabila, from trying to change the constitution in the Congo. And that then led to elections and to, to Kabila's ouster and the, the, you know, the return to some semblance of, a, of democracy in that country. I want to come back to Gertler in a minute, because in recent days, uh, I, alongside many others, have learned of a last minute reversal mm -hmm. by the Trump administration uh, of the Gertler sanctions through, through a license being issued by OFAC. Mm -hmm. And that is something I, I hope the Biden administration will move swiftly uh, to, to repeal. Uh, and to reimpose those sanctions on Gertler uh, because his his behavior is is truly uh, appalling, uh, as is the issuance of that license by OFAC, in my view. Um, I was going to ask you about that. I'm glad you raised it <laughs> when you brought I, up uh, Dan Gertler. <laughs> I, I was I was astounded to see mm -hmm. that that occur, and I, I um, believe that uh, uh, many of the fine career uh, policy makers in the Treasury were completely blindsided mm -hmm. by that action. Uh, I must say, Nate, I, I'm particularly proud of our efforts to combat the Maduro regime's efforts mm -hmm. to undermine democracy in Venezuela. I mean, the rapaciousness of Nicolas Maduro and Celia Flores knows no bounds. They've impoverished millions. They've created an unprecedented uh, migration crisis in Latin America and the United States in the Western Hemisphere. Um, they have driven Venezuela's oil industry into the ground. You can see from space the man-made lakes uh, full of mercury, red mercury, where they're processing, ripping gold out of the jungle. It's mm -hmm. ecocide on a, on a horrific and mammoth scale. And there must be a price to pay for these people abusing uh, human rights, and, and, and we must prevent them from accessing our, our, our financial system to launder their ill-begotten gains. And you, know, you can look around the world. I'm also very proud of the many actions we took against Hezbollah financiers, particularly those who are preying upon uh, the weak and helpless in Africa. Uh, one of the most egregious that stands out in my mind is what Mohammed Ibrahim Bazi uh, was doing in the Gambia uh, together with the dictator there, Jaja Kame. Uh, and basically the scheme there, um, how that was working was Bazi got a monopoly over electricity production in the Gambia, in exchange for which he was furnishing underage girls to the dictator in a human trafficking network. A truly outrageous behavior. Mm. Or, you know, another Hezbollah financier, Salah Asi, uh, who was running the largest bakery in the Democratic Republic of Congo and was fixing the price of bread. I mean, truly horrific stuff here. And of course, in that case, you're talking about two financiers who are funneling a portion of their uh, corrupt proceeds back to the terror operations of Hassan Nasrallah in Lebanon. No, that's great. Thank you. And I suppose on, on that note, you're sort of looking forward. You mentioned you'd like to see the Biden administration reimpose those uh, Gertler uh, sanctions. But uh, what, you know, there's so much, so much more low-hanging fruit. There's so much more to do, right? Um, you, did, you had these amazing achievements, but what would you like the Biden administration to kind of do next in terms of America's fight against kleptocracy illicit finance? And also, if necessary, uh, the 117th Congress, because there's a lot of, there are some loopholes and things that need legislation. So if you have any thoughts about that as well, I'd be fascinated to hear. Well, so I think, you know, keep again, keeping it simple, I hope the Biden administration follows our lead and builds mm -hmm. on our lead. 
you know, it, it's vogue these days for incoming administration officials to denigrate or down downplay the progress that we made under the Trump administration, uh, try to tear down their predecessors' achievements in order to make their own accomplishments seem more significant. I hope they don't do that when it comes to our work fighting corruption and targeting human rights abuses. This is a nonpartisan issue. It shouldn't be politicized. Mm -hmm. uh, our administration, uh, I think, unquestionably was the most aggressive in fighting corruption in U.S. history. Uh, we did many things uh, that, that those before us tried but were unable to do, such as getting the beneficial ownership registry established in law, mm -hmm. uh, bringing into force the global Magnitsky sanctions. Uh, we've left an excellent foundation, I think, for the incoming team. I hope they take advance, you know, take advantage of that. Uh, but I must say, Nate, it's not at all clear to me that even with everything we did under the previous four years, I'm not sure we're we're winning the fight against corruption. I think it's essential we double down. Mm -hmm. And so I hope that the Biden administration will, in fact, be more aggressive, more active, uh, that they will uh, apply greater pressure through the Financial Action Task Force and bilaterally um, through our relationships to try to clean up and clean out these jurisdictions. It is a never-ending fight, uh, but it's one that we may in fact be losing ground on. Not, not to end on a pessimistic note, <laughs> but I think uh, when it comes to the 117th Congress, as you asked, they, they, I, I do hope and I will urge uh, my, my friends and colleagues on the Hill to, to be supportive of any effort that the Biden administration uh, takes to combat kleptocrats and corruption. There are times when the Congress feels that it's being helpful, particularly when they try to impose mandatory sanctions. Uh, I, I think that, in fact, I would urge that they not uh, do that, resist that temptation. <laughs> when you do that, you're, you're basically tipping the hand. Uh, and these folks like Gertler, highly sophisticated, legions of lawyers and accountants, if they see the sanctions coming, the money will be gone before the Treasury can get to it. So the element of surprise and the ability to negotiate behind the scenes with foreign jurisdictions to take care of the problem through a wide, you know, a much wider arrangement uh, or set of mechanisms than just sanctions alone, mm -hmm. that flexibility is going to be very important to give to the Biden team. That's great. And I guess I'd, I don't want to end on a pessimistic note. So uh, maybe one more thing we could talk about Um you know your actions uh, at Treasury, um, but also the broadest broader trend of anti-kleptocracy efforts over the past few years, uh, from the Panama Papers to One MDB, um, have shown that it really uh, takes a global network to take down global networks. So, who are the uh, you mentioned bilateral relations? Who are the democratic allies uh, you think we should be working more closely with on this issue? But also. Um, who are the sort of civil society groups and uh, independent media organizations uh, you think we should also be uh, supporting? You, we, you mentioned this when we talked uh, the other day, and, and I'd love to hear your final thoughts on that. Uh, in particular, our our NATO allies. Uh, mm -hmm. now, of course, NATO is a, 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 a collective defense organization, but uh, we have very, very strong connections, uh, not just between our state departments and foreign ministries and our defense uh, and ministries of defense, but also between the finance ministries and the financial intelligence units. And I think that the uh, collaboration that occurred, for instance, with Canada uh, and with also with a number of other like-minded nations, Colombia and others, uh, to track down Argentina at the time, to track down uh, Maduro's finances, uh, stands out as an excellent model for collaboration. So mm -hmm. we have to go beyond our European friends. Um, we, we will need to continue to work with Europe, uh, particularly London, um, as they, you know, with Brexit, 
uh, now are standing apart and independently from the EU regulations. Uh, we, we need to work with the UK to make sure that London uh, really ceases to be a major haven for third-party money launderers. Um, we also must work with Germany and France as, as those financial centers will take on additional uh, importance in the new, in the new uh, post-Brexit environment. Uh, one of the things that our experience in Latvia and Cyprus and Malta and elsewhere uh, shows us is that there are some, uh, some gaps in the regulatory frameworks that are necessary, uh, particularly when a bank is determined to, to be engaged in, in systemic money laundering. Um, who exactly is responsible for uh, for putting a freeze on those banks, uh, revoking the license, and liquidating the assets? Um, so there's quite a bit of work to, to be done in that respect. Non-governmental organizations and investigative journalists are also of vital importance in this fight, uh, and so we we absolutely should look to um, both human rights uh, uh, groups. Uh, whether we're talking, for instance, about the Sentry uh, and John Prendergast, who's done phenomenal work with his team in Africa, yep. uh, or we're talking about a, a number of um, Venezuelan human rights uh, groups or groups focused on Nicaragua, um, or uh, all of the investigative journalists who really uh, dig into these these different corruption schemes, whether it's the golden passport schemes we've seen in recent days, protests uh, erupting in Cyprus mm -hmm. over over that scheme. Um, there, there is just enormous work to be done, and it is through a coalition of like-minded individuals, whether they happen to be in government or at think tanks like Hudson or in in other non-governmental organizations. Uh, like-minded individuals have to pool their knowledge, their insights, and collaborate on ways to, to really root out and, and, and clean up uh, uh, these, these environments. Well, that's fantastic. And I think unless you have any further thoughts, uh, Marshall, that's about all we have time for uh, today, sadly. So I want to I I welcome you again to Hudson uh, and to Making a Killing. Hopefully, I'm not going to drag you on every week like I do with Casey and Paul, but hopefully you'll be a repeat uh, guest uh, because you have so much so many insights to offer and I'm, I'm deeply grateful for you being my my first interview guest today thanks nate great to talk and i look forward to working with you in the future great thanks Cheers. thank you all for joining us for this episode of making a killing if you're enjoying the show please do make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and again a five-star rating is deeply appreciated in spreading the word if you'd like to hear more about the Kleptocracy Initiative or the Hudson Institute, please visit hudson.org. Sadly, that's it for this week, but I'll see you next time.